Let's open our Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. Let's read verses 1 and 2 to begin with. New paragraph starts with verse 3. It says, Bell boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaded. They are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Now here you have the Babylonian idols, or carried by beasts. Uh, the chief idols of Babylon were of gold and silver, and this didn't save them from going into captivity. And so we, we find that this section explains why God can and will save Israel. Through Cyrus's, Cyrus, the one we've been speaking about was their deliverer. While Babylon's idols could not save even the Babylonians, much less the city of Babylon. And Baal, I'll try to give you a little information about Baal, a god of Babylon. And it's equivalent to uh, the Canaanite god Baal. And sometimes closely identified with Marduk, M-A-R-D-U-K, the patron god of Babylon. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 50, in verse 2, let me read a verse of Scripture for you. It says, Declare ye among the nations, and publish, and set up the standard, publish, and conceal not. Say, Babylon is taken, Baal is confounded, the same name you have there. Moradach, M-E-R-O-D-A-C-H, is broken in pieces. Her idols are confounded, her images are broken in pieces. So sometimes, as we said, this... Baal is closely identified with this uh, Merodach or Marduk. And this was the patron god of Babylon. Now the name, uh, if you'll notice, it says Baal down, Baal boweth down, and it says Nebo stoopeth. In that verse 1? So Baal and Nebo both are spoken of here. And Nebo actually is a, a name, it's proof of a widespread Worship of Nebo, and is shown by his many personal names that compounded to it during the Chaldean dynasty. So uh, you have a lot of names that start like Nabopalazer and Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuzaradan and Nabonidus, and all of these are compound names of Nebo. In fact, if you turn to 2 Kings 25, verse 8, let me give you a verse of Scripture. It says this, And in the fifth month and on the seventh day of the month, which is the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and came Nebuzaradan. So you have Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon unto Jerusalem. So you have several plays on that name. The name is compounded, and it was customary to transport these gods upon on these beasts that are spoken of. Look at this verse again. It says, your carriages, verse 1, your carriages were heavy loaden. They are a burden to the weary beasts. And then verse 2 says, they stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. They were a burden. And these uh, gods were transported on these beasts. In fact, uh, on the carriages, the old English sense of referring to these things carried, the images of idols or the baggage that they were carrying. 
And it may refer ironically to the images that used to be carried in the solemn processions on a New Year's festival that they had. And regardless of what you speak about the interpretation of this, the point is this, that these gods cannot even move their own. They are carried and let alone deliver Babylon from the coming invasion that was coming by this man that God had chosen, a man named Cyrus, that we know was chosen for this purpose. You know, these heathen insulted the Jews as if their idols, Baal and Nebo, were too hard for Jehovah. But their worshipers cannot help them. Both the idols and the idolaters are going into captivity. So God's people do not need to be afraid of either. Those things from which the ungodly men expect safety and happiness will be found unable to save them from death and hell. And you know, in spite of the failure of the gods of Babylon, we find that the next verse will show us how uh, faithful and successful God is and how He will perform under certain circumstances and how He will always deliver His people. If you look at verse 2, it says, hearken, I mean verse 3, Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me. Now see the beasts in verses 1 and 2 were carrying the gods of Babylon. But he says, all the remnant of the house of Israel, God says they're born by me. In other words, I carry them, from, uh, are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. I even... And even to your old age, I am he, and even the whore hairs will I, even to whore hairs. In other words, when you get real old, I will carry you. I have made, I have made, and I will bear, even I will carry, and will deliver you. You see the contrast between the heathen gods and the idols? The heathen gods and idols could not, in Babylon, of Babylon, could not carry themselves. They had no movement. They had to be carried on beasts. And even in this matter, they couldn't deliver themselves or they couldn't, it couldn't deliver them from, from the captivity and from judgment. And then we find, on the other hand, that God is able to carry His people Himself, personally and individually, from the womb, from the beginning of time, until our old age, and even forever. God says He'll take care of us. He will never fail His worshipers. The history of the life of every believer is a kind of abstract of the history of Israel. In other words, our life and God carrying Israel is just as if He will carry us as well. And our spiritual life is upheld by His grace. And as constantly as our natural life is by His providence. You know, you wonder sometimes what you're going to have to endure as you face the changing circumstances of life. That's the providence of God. But listen, the history of every believer... And our life is upheld by His grace just as constantly as our natural life is by His providence. And God will never leave us. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And this promise to Israel, enfeebled and grown old as a nation, is applicable to every follower of Christ in this day and age. And when we're compassed about with infirmities, and perhaps those around begin to grow weary of you, God says, I am He that promised to be all that you need for me to be. I will bear you up and I will carry you on your way and carry you home at last. And if we learn to trust in the Lord and trust in His love, we need not be uh, over-anxious about 
all the things that happen to us, the remaining days and years of our lives. He'll still provide for us and watch over us, both as creatures of His power and as new created creatures by His Holy Spirit. He will take care of us. You know, the thing about God's provision is that it's constant. Our emotions and our circumstances and our situations change from day to day. But God is the same. And He says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Have you ever thought about, well, how am I going to deal with this situation in life? Or I'm getting older and how I'll take care of that. And what's going to happen to me in old age? What's going to happen to me when uh, the pains of of uh, old age come upon me. God's still going to be there. That's the thing. You and I are going to vary and our lives will be uh, beset with different situations. Sometimes we wonder. I was building a house for a man one time up here in Indian Hills. And he walked around the corner of the house and he was just very active in helping me. And he was an engineer. By the way, he was a... Um, machinist from Las Cruces and um, he did all the machine work and electrical work in there and various other things he walked around the corner of the house and the little little limb just about so big hit him in the eye put him out of commission for several weeks and you know he just couldn't understand you know these these things happen and you never know when you'll be put out of commission for a little while just like brother Randy I least expected anything to happen to him He's always healthy, seemingly. But it doesn't mean that, it, that any of us are immune to any situation in life. And so we have to learn to face them. But the, the promise here is God... Look at this again. Verses 3 and 4. See if you can get the meaning that I've tried to give you. It says, Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the, from the belly, which are carried from the womb, and even... To your old age I am he, and even to whore hairs, the white hairs upon our heads, speaking of the many winters I have made, and I will bear, even I will carry, and I will and will deliver you. That's a pretty great promise, isn't it? Pretty great promise from the Lord to do all this for us. He says, Born by, by me, that's in contrast to what proceeds. That's in contrast to Babylon's idols, so far from bearing their people safely, are themselves borne off, and they're a burden to be carried. But God's people are in safety even from the womb to old age. God compares himself to a nurse tenderly carrying a child, just like you would tenderly carry a baby and, and take care of it. God compares himself. And think of Well, let's look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. It says this, As the eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, and spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. It says, He made him to ride on the high places of the earth, that he might eat of the increase of of the fields, and he made him to suck honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinted rock. So all of these things did God for Israel of old, and he does those things for you and I as well. Back in our text, Isaiah 46, verse 5. 
To whom will ye liken me and make me equal and compare me that ye may be like? In other words, are you going to compare God? It's absurd to compare God and the God of Israel to the heathen gods and with such impotent statues as the idols that they make. It's absurd to do that. He says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal? Are you going to make God, the living and true God, equal to idols? Equal to idols of silver and gold or equal to idols in, in the last chapter, if you'll remember, that we studied where the smith made idols and then the carpenter, he carved idols out of a stump of wood, out of a tree, and he made uh, the part of the tree to into wood and warmed himself by the fire and baked his bread and roasted his meat and so on and so forth. <laughs> Can a God be made out of that which is so material that it's just to supply our food and our, the natural things of life? And can you make that a God? And that's what the Lord is saying here. To whom will you liken me? And then in verse 6 it says, They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith and he maketh it a God. They fall down, yea, they worship gold out of a bag and silver. Man has... Spared no expense in the production of all of his idols that he makes. There's great expense. Gold and silver and all the work of the smith, the goldsmith, to make a god. How do you suppose that that would really work in life if you were to go get all the gold that you could get together and all the silver and all... Well, all right, there's all the money. There's, there's great amounts of expense. And then hire a man. Hire the goldsmith to fashion that into an idol and to make an idol and fall down and worship that when you can worship the true and living God for what? Free for nothing. Free of charge. In fact, you're invited to come to God. But yet men make their idols in spite of it, don't they? And it says, they lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance. So there's your expense of it. And hire the goldsmith and he make the God. They fall down. Yea, they worship They bear him up on the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place. They have to to carry him. Can you imagine a God that you have to carry? When God says, I'll carry you, you don't have to carry me. And yet there are people that want idols. They want idols to worship. Notice verse 7. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place. And he standeth. From his place shall he not remove. In other words, he's so much of a statue and an idol and an image that he can't even move. Compare that. He says, are you going to liken me to a God like that? Will I be compared to a God that cannot even move wherever you put him in his place? There he's got to be. And God is everywhere. our God is everywhere present. He's all-knowing and all-seeing. The Bible says that God is all-powerful. He's the God of creation. He made us. We're the sheep of His pasture. The Bible tells us that He knows everything, that all knowledge is with God. The Bible tells us He's everywhere present in this universe. You read one of the Psalms. It says, Though I take the wings of the morn, though I make my bed in hell, thou art there. He says, Wherever I go, where can I go from thy presence? There's nowhere. And we cannot escape God's presence or His eye. Have you ever thought about the fact that you and I, that God sees and knows everything that we do? The Bible says the eyes of the Lord, 
you know, God is a spirit, but God pictures Himself to us with human uh, faculties so that we'll understand His personal relationship to us. And that's why the Bible says He has eyes, the ears of the Lord. His ears are open to our prayers. Does God really have ears? No, God is spirit. But He, he pictures Himself to you and I as having ears and having eyes. And His hand is strong because we know the hand. The right hand of His power. And yet... The Bible teaches that uh, God is all-powerful and all-seeing and all-knowing. It says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the ways of man. He seeth all his goings. There is no darkness, no shadow of death, where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. So God sees everything we do, and He knows all about us. You know, man may hide something from, from uh, others. You may hide from... Husband or wife, son or daughter, father or mother, the church, family, friends. But you do not hide from God. And I'm not talking about just outwardly where you are physically. You do not hide from God from the very inmost of your being. He says He knoweth the thoughts afar off. So God knows all about us. So why should we try to to hide anything from the Lord? From His place shall He not remove. That's verse 7. Yea, one... Uh, shall cry, yea, one shall cry unto him, yet he cannot answer. See there, God cannot answer. Nor save him out of his trouble. Wouldn't you hate to have a God that you had to cry to and he didn't, you know he's not going to answer because he's just a piece of stone or wood? And yet men worship gods like that. And in the Old Testament, even Israel, God's chosen people that he had performed all the miraculous things before them, and yet they turned and said, Moses went up into the mountain to get the commandments of God. And we don't know when He's coming back, so let's make us gods that delivered. And we'll say that these gods delivered up us out of Egypt when they knew better than that. And they made the golden calf, fell down and worshipped this calf that they've made out of gold. You think man is not prone to idolatry with all the proof that Israel had. It's very much true that man is prone to idolatry. You say, well, preacher, I'm not prone to idolatry. Well, if you put anything between you and, and the worship of God and putting God before you uh, full-fledged and with the whole heart, it becomes an idol. It stands in the way. In fact, Paul says in the New Testament that covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness. Jesus said the man's life consisted not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he says, take heed and beware of covetousness. That was the verse before that. So, we're thankful we should, as far as material things are concerned, they're for us to use and to have and to hold while we're here on a temporary basis. But it all belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and they that dwell therein. Have you ever thought you used to get a little piece of property and say, this belongs to me? Well, <laughs> it does, but it doesn't. It all belongs to God. you got the title deed for it, and that means you can... You can have your house there or your property there or your facilities there. But it all belongs to God. And you know boundary lines can change. This can change. That can change. Uh, values can change. But it belongs to God. That get our mind off of a materialistic idea, won't it, for a while? I want you to notice uh, in verse uh, 8. He says, Remember this and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. This is a reminder to them, O ye transgressors. In other words, the meaning of the second clause is unclear, but it says, 
really he's saying, fix it in your mind. Fix it in your mind. There's some things that we need fixed in our mind so that it will not be changed. Remember this and show yourselves men. Have some manhood about it, some convictions about it. Bring it again to mind. Remember what God has said. And he says, oh, you transgressors or you rebels. Verse 9 says, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. I am God and there is none else. And he says, I am God and there is none like me. But we're to remember the former things. All the predictions, all the things that God has said have come to pass. They're proof of God's divinity and God's power and God's truth, God's faithfulness. And they mean to you and I that whatever he's promised to Israel and he's kept his promise and brought them to pass, that, that anything that he has promised us, he'll also do it. Have you ever heard people say, well, I don't care about Israel and I don't care about God's promises to Israel? Well, if God was not true to his promises to a nation and a people, how could you be sure that he'd be, uh, keep the promises he made to you? So his promises of old and his predictions of old are just as important as his predictions concerning you and I in the future. And if you can't take God's word for, for the old, how do you know you can take his word for the, the new promises that are made to us? So it's very important that we realize. And it tells us what he could do. He says, declaring the end from the beginning. God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient Ancient times are things that are not yet done. God foresees the future. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. I will do all my pleasure. God's pleasure will stand. He will do all that He has promised He will do. And then He says in verse 11, Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man, the man, this bird, ravenous bird, is the man. You know who it is? It's Cyrus that we've already predicted. The man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. The ravenous bird he calls. And of course Cyrus was represented uh, by, as a ravenous bird. The Bible speaks of him as such. And then in verse 12, Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted, that are far from righteous. Stout-hearted means stubborn or rebellious or resistant of God. Remember that uh, Stephen preached and he says, You men, uh, you Jews do always, you people of Israel do always resist the Holy Ghost. And then in verse 12, uh, 13, he says, I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. So God has promised, again, that He will bring salvation and that He will bring righteousness. And this last verse takes us beyond the fall of Babylon in the Old Testament, that Cyrus would deliver the people uh, from Babylon, captivity, and he did. And the next chapter will reveal uh, the fall of Babylon in chapter 47. But this... Uh, the last, this last verse takes us beyond that, the fall of Babylon of the past, to the final Babylon of Revelation. And it's then that I will place salvation in Zion and for Israel my glory. Notice the last statement of verse 13. So we're looking forward to a future time of salvation that God has promised to Israel of old.
Now then, chapter 47 has to do with the fall of Babylon. It's a description of the fall of Babylon. And it's a very interesting chapter. This section discusses the destruction of Babylon. And it's represented by the image of the degradation of the virgin, of a royal virgin. It says, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Come down and sit in the dust. Babylon's degradation is announced here. And in this uh, verse we find, sit on the ground, it says, there is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. In other words, your government will be taken from you. They're going to fall. And although Babylon would not would uh, continue to be an important political center after Cyrus's conquest, the Persians controlled it, not the Chaldeans. Remember that in the book of Daniel it says, "In this night was Belshazzar slain, and the Medes and the Persians took over." In Daniel chapter five. And Babylon here is likened to a woman of noble standing. Look at that. Uh, it says, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Uncover thy locks, bear the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will uh, not meet thee as a man. It's likened to a woman of noble standing who has been humiliated and is now to assume the task and the dress of the poorest in society. In other words, to grind meal, to take on the form of servitude. Referring to the set of stones, the millstones, there was one convex and one concave. You know, like the you've seen the, the Indians... Uh, places where they have a stone that's uh, concave and then the convex or the stone that you use to grind with. Only we don't know what size or anything, but they turned, they turned against each other by hand. They were by hand. They were used to grind corn before the invention of water mills or windmills either. And they could drive much larger millstones than the, than the old simple Stones that were referred to here, the millstones. Uncover thy locks. Notice it says, uncover thy locks. That means uh, simply to put off your veil. These women have been veiled. The veil is the outward expression of a woman's modesty. To go about was exposed. To go uh, modesty and to go about exposed was a sign of their humiliation when they were exposed. Make bare the leg. And that means rather lift up the flowing train in order to cross the streams. Instead of being carried like a lady of high status, they were to, to lift up in their, uh, their uh, flowing train or skirt or whatever and so they could go across the streams or the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. In other words, the ultimate indignity of a woman to uncover. So all that's mentioned in verses 2 and 3. Take the millstones and grind meal. In other words, they were in the place of servitude. Uncover thy locks, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not meet thee as a man. God says, I will take vengeance. You know what he's saying here? I will use no humility nor pity toward you. Wouldn't you have hate to be in a situation 
where God would not have pity or mercy toward you? Look at that verse. I, God says, I will take vengeance and I will not meet thee as a man. God ordinarily meets men with mercy and and uh, tenderness and forgiveness. But when there is such sin and wickedness and such judgment and vengeance that comes upon men, God says, I will no more use no humanity nor pity towards you. As for our Redeemer, verse 4, the Lord... Of host is his name, the Holy One of Israel. This is the Redeemer. The choice epitaph of God's people is given to counter the other religion, of the religion of the Babylonians that's just mentioned. In verse 5, Sit thou silent and get thee in, into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. See? For thou shalt no more be called the Lady of Kingdoms. Retribution for Babylon is coming. They're going to have to repay. They're going to have to... Uh, Meet the, what what is uh, coming to them. The posture of mourning and misery is sitting in silence. Sit thou in silence. Remember Job's friends, they came to him when he had his terrible calamity fall, fallen upon him. And they sat for seven days and spake not a word, looking at poor old Job. Seven days, a period of mourning. And though they did it probably as the Scripture teaches that it should be done, wouldn't that be a horrible thing for to be in the condition that Job was in and have, have your three friends that would come and sit there and stare at you for seven days. I don't believe I'd like that very much. I'd rather they'd come and say hi and bye real quick. Because, uh, but see, they were pretending to mourn with him over his condition, and actually they were, and that was a custom. For seven days it was a, a time that was allotted for such situations. But it says, sit thou, look, sit thou, silent, and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called the lady of the kingdoms. In verses 5 through 7, we have retribution for Babylon. In verse 6 says, I was wroth with my people, I have polluted my inheritance, and given them into thine hand. Thou didst show them no mercy. Upon the ancient hast thou very heavily laid the yoke, thy yoke. God would punish Babylon. Now, Babylon was used, God used Babylon to fulfill His purpose, but at the same time, she exercised un, unreasonable cruelty toward, God, toward God's people. When it says the ancient here, it has reference to the aged. They were harshly treated, and there was no compassion shown. And Babylon thought that her powerful condition and position could be maintained forever. You see, there. And indefinitely, there are men that get into power and nations that get into power that think they're uh, never going to fall. But God has power over all nations, and there is a fall coming. In verse uh, 7 it says, And thou saidest, I shall, I shall be a lady forever. See, she thought she was indestructible. I shall be a lady forever with all the pomp and the glory of Babylon as she's presented as we said in verse 1. O virgin daughter of Babylon. See? But it says there is no throne. Her throne was going to be taken down. That's verse 1. O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. In other words, compare verse 1 with verse uh, 7. And thou saidest, I shall be a lady forever, so that thou didst not lay these things to thy heart. When you and I think that our nation and that there are nations in the world that are, that are just so mighty and powerful, 
that there will never be a fall. When we think that as uh, individuals, we can come into some surprising events. For thou didst not lay these things to heart, to thy heart, neither didst thou remember the latter end of it. That God predicted the latter end of their fall and they wouldn't believe it. If we could, you know, if you would take this and apply it over in the book of Revelation to God's prediction of the fall of the great Babylon the Great in chapters 17 18 of Revelation, you'd find that they didn't believe it either. But nevertheless, the fall is predicted that it will come. In verse 8, look, notice it says, Therefore hear now this, that thou art given, thou that art given to pleasures, thou that dwellest, that dwellest carelessly, given to pleasures, dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me, I will I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. Boy, she thought that everything was okay. This language of arrogance is not a proper attitude for any man to have. It's only fitting for God to have. And God, uh, of course, in chapter 46, verse 45, verse 6, He says that they may know from the rising of the sun... And from the west, that there, there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. It's alright for God to say, I'm the Lord. I'm not going to fall. I'm uh, the Lord and there is none else. But for man and for nations to take this attitude, 47 verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. Get this in your mind. Therefore hear now this, thou that art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thine heart, I am and there is none beside me. They were taking the same claim that God Himself claimed. They said, I'm, I am and there's none beside me. I shall not sit as a widow. Neither shall I know the loss of children. Because of this arrogance, God was going to judge. And He was going to do it in a moment. Babylon would be reduced from self-indulgent, wealthy woman to a widow. She will fall from her high position to a place of humiliation. And in verse 9 it says, But these two things shall come upon... Uh, come to thee in a moment, in one day. God says, you claim that you're not going to fall, you claim you're not going to lose children, you claim you're not going to be a widow, but God says, these two things shall come to thee in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. Both of them. They shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantments. See, God does judge sin, doesn't he? They'd come suddenly and unexpectedly they would be destroyed. And Cyrus only needed one night to conquer them. Belshazzar, remember, was killed and was apparently taken. The king, and Nabonidus, there's another king that's mentioned in other scriptures, and we can get that later, was apparently taken captive by Cyrus. So we find that their widowhood did come and the loss of children, and it was all because of their, their great... The multitude of sorceries and the great abundance of their enchantments. Verse 10 says, For thou that hast trusted in thy wickedness, thou hast said, None seeth me. Don't ever say that none sees you. God sees you. Don't talk about that. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. Because she thought she was so wise, this Babylon, this one that he said would he'd make a widow and take the children as well. Uh... Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee, and thou hast said in thine heart, I am and none else beside me. You may be able to hide 
And man may, may be able to hide his sin from other men, but there's no such thing as keeping it secret from God. Thy wisdom, the idolatry, ultimately entrusting in human uh, idols, were destined to doom when compared to the divinely revealed truth of the Lord. And God says, you've claimed this, but you're, yet you're going to fall. You've said there's none beside me, but you're going to meet your end and your destruction. Look at verse 11. Therefore shall evil come upon thee. Evil means mischief and desolation. Disaster would fall upon Babylon. That their religious magic cannot charm away. They had the sorceries and what? Remember? And the great abundance of thine enchantments. And this couldn't deliver them. This couldn't cause them to cease. By the way, I hope we get down to this next verse. Verse 13. We'll try to hurry and get there because I want to show you something else. Therefore shall evil come upon thee, verse 11, thou shalt not know from whence it riseth, and mischief shall fall upon thee, thou shalt not be able to put it off, the desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know, in other words, it's going to come. Stand now with thine enchantments, and with a multitude of thy sorceries, wherein thou hast labored from thy youth. If so be, if so be, thou shalt be able to profit, if so be, thou mayest prevail. Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counselors. Look at this now. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly uh, prognosticators, that's a hard word to say, prognosticators, stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. Well, look at those. The astrologers, this is the first specified reference or specific reference to the astrologers and the uh, the uh, ones that uh, the stargazers that divide the heavens is spoken of. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these that shall come upon thee. These astrologers will be unable to save themselves, let alone the nation, by their predictions. Look at verse 14. Behold, they shall be as stubble. You know, there's a lot of people trusting astrology today and all the things that are read into it. They shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. In other words, they shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. They don't have that power. They are not able to be able to save themselves. They will not be able to save the nation. By their predictions, they will burn completely by fire, a fire whose purpose is not to warm but to destroy. Notice it says, They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There shall not be a coal to warm at, nor fire to sit before. All their efforts will be in vain. Thus shall they be unto thee with whom thou hast labored, even thy merchants from thy youth. They shall wander every one to his quarter. None shall save thee. All of their efforts will be in vain, and none will be able to save them. By the way, there's a warning here for those who have abandoned God and turned to the horoscope for their guidance. That's not going to guide you one bit. People say, well, I've read in my horoscope. Well, you just well quit reading your horoscope. As far as that goes, it doesn't have any value. Now, that may upset some, but right, right back here in the Bible, that's what it says about it. It says it's not going to do you any good. It's not going to deliver you. And it's all going to burn up by the fire. 
So there's a lot of good lessons here if we take them verse by verse. We'll pick up with the next chapter.